There's another grand old hymn we have sung for years in our books. We have heard the joyful sound, it begins. Jesus saves, Jesus saves. Spread the tidings all around. Jesus saves, Jesus saves. That is a joyful sound. The idea of salvation through Jesus Christ. The joyful sound of salvation. The psalmist of old in Psalm 89, verses 15 and 16, used that phrase, joyful sound. In verse 15 of this psalm, the psalmist exalting the covenant relationship that God's people had with him at that time, wrote these words, Blessed are the people who know the joyful sound. They walk, O Lord, in the light of your countenance. In your name they rejoice all day long, and in your righteousness they are exalted. Oh, there is so much meaning packed into those few words, words that I'd like for us to study this morning as we contemplate the joyful sound. Now, in this immediate context of Psalm 89, the joyful sound most likely was a reference to the sound of the trumpets under the Old Covenant that called the people to certain festive occasions or feast days. And you can read about those in the book of Leviticus and Numbers and other places. And it is likely that this is what the psalmist was referring to when he wrote, Blessed are those who know the joyful sound, when they hear that joyful sound, to praise God, to have opportunity to worship God. And certainly that should still be true of us today if we're God's people. Blessed are those who know the joyful sound, not of trumpets, but of, of the worship that we are to be engaged in as set forth in the New Testament. The coming together, the assembling of ourselves together to sing praises as we have done, to offer prayer to God as we have done, to partake of the Lord's Supper on the first day of the week, to give of our means, to study from the Word of God. Those specified and authorized acts of worship for us should be a joyful experience. And we should anticipate with joy every opportunity that we have to come together. Oh yes, the joyful sound of worship is certainly something that is involved here. But I'd like for us to think this morning in these two powerful verses about the joyful sound that has now come to us through the gospel of Jesus Christ and some characteristics of that gospel and of those who obey that gospel. Looking at these major points, first of all, those who know the joyful sound and what is involved in knowing the joyful sound of salvation that comes through the gospel. And then to look at walking in the light of his countenance and what is involved there for us today and what is involved in the name in which we rejoice as the psalmist writes all day long continual rejoicing. And finally, to look at the last part of the statement in verse 16, what is involved in being exalted in his righteousness? This is a beautiful summary 
from the psalmist of old that has application to us today. Oh, yes, it was written long ago, most likely written at a time when God's people were in the process of being carried into Babylonian captivity or just after that had occurred. In the first part of the psalm, there is an expression of praise to God and an expression of praise because of God's covenant with David. And yet, at verse 37, after verse 37, there is a complete change of tone beginning at verse 38 where it is believed that Jehoiakim, the last king of the southern kingdom of Judah, was carried into captivity and Nebuchadnezzar had placed upon the throne a puppet king named Zedekiah. And that this was the setting in which these words were written. But for us there is application in verses 15 and 16 as we said as we contemplate these primary points. Knowing the joyful sound, walking in the light of God's countenance, rejoicing in his name, and being exalted in his righteousness. What a beautiful outline the psalmist provides for us in his inspired description. Think about it. First of all, blessed are the people who know the joyful sound. And that is a very important reminder of something that many people have lost sight of in the world in which we live today, and that is knowing anything. That there is anything that constitutes absolute knowledge. And that there's really no ability on anybody's part to absolutely know the truth. Perhaps about anything, but especially when it comes to religion. It is all a matter of speculation. It's all a matter of the personalization of your spiritual life in terms of what it means to you and how you contemplate spirituality and how you define spirituality and how you express spirituality. But we are reminded in Scripture, from Old Testament to New, that we can know, we can know the joyful sound of salvation. We can know that we know Him. Remember, as John reminded us in 1 John 2, 3, by this we know that we know Him if we keep His commandments. And Jesus, as He lived among men on this earth, reminded us in John 8, 32, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. He did not say you shall know a truth among many truths. He said you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Knowledge is one of the key words. The word know or the knowledge, some derivative of it, is a key word in the first epistle that John wrote, his first epistle, 1 John, where knowledge is expressed as being absolute. Therefore, it is not a matter of my having to speculate or wonder about whether or not I am in a saved or covenant relationship with God. This psalm depicts the covenant relationship that God's people had with him under the Davidic covenant, under that Mosaic dispensation. But we today live under a different dispensation, the final dispensation, the gospel dispensation, the Christian age. And in that age, the full sunlight of the gospel has been shed upon us and the full knowledge of God's love and God's grace and God's mercy and God's will for our lives. And the people who have come to know the joyful sound of salvation through the gospel are those truly who are blessed. It's not enough to hear. The passage does not declare that those who are blessed are those who have heard 
the joyful sound, but those who've heard and have come to know the blessings that pertain to the gospel. How do we come to know those blessings? We come to know them by, as we said, not simply hearing, but by believing what we've heard. By believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Believe that I am He, or you will die in your sins, Jesus declared in John 8, 24. But then we must turn from our sins, turn away from them, change of mind that leads to a change of life, and that constitutes repentance, as Jesus expressed it in Luke 13, 3, a passage we've often cited. I tell you no, He said, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And so belief alone is not enough to know the joyful sound of salvation. It must lead us to repent. Our belief must lead us to repent and then to sweetly confess that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. With the heart man believes unto righteousness and with the mouth confession is made unto in the direction of, Paul expressed it in that Roman passage, salvation. He who confesses me before men, I will confess before the Father in heaven, Jesus said. But whoever denies me, I'll deny before the Father in heaven. And yes, to know the joyful sound of salvation, we must complete our faith by submitting to a watery burial where the blood of Jesus awaits to cleanse us from our sins as we're buried in water and as we rise to walk in newness of life. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, Mark 16, 16. Romans 6, 3, and 4 reminds the Christians there at Rome, Paul's pen does, that as many of them as been, been baptized into Christ had put on Christ, or the Galatian letter, he reminded them that those who had been baptized into Christ had put on Christ. And in the Roman epistle, at chapter 6, verses 3 and 4, do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death, he puts it there. And then he goes on, therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we also should walk in newness of life. And that brings us to our second point from this beautiful psalm. Those who know the joyful sound, they walk, O Lord. In the light of your countenance. What a beautiful picture that is, isn't it? Those who have come to know the joyful sound of salvation in this dispensation of time, that is those who have rendered sweet obedience to the gospel of Christ and have been raised to walk in newness of life, they then walk, begin their walk, where? In the light of God's countenance. God acknowledges them as his children, faithful children, obedient children, and they continue to walk in the light of His presence and in the light of His will. Because isn't that what John, again, in the first epistle reminds us? If we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses, keeps on cleansing us from all sin. We keep on walking in the light of God's countenance, which is equivalent to saying we walk in the light of His Word, as John expressed it. And so we walk in the light of His Word. Do we walk sinlessly in the light of His Word? No. 
That's why John goes on in that same passage to say, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we'll confess our sins, we have fellowship with one another. The blood of Jesus Christ, his son, keeps on cleansing us from all sin. So we keep up our walk and we continue to confess our sins before the throne of heaven. And by doing so, we are walking with the approval of God. As the psalmist seems to express it, he recognizes us, looks down upon us with approval as we walk in his will. And what should be the emotional state, if you will, of those who are so doing? Those who've come to know the joyful sound by obedience to the gospel, and those who are walking in the light of God's countenance by walking in harmony with his revealed will in the New Testament, the last will and testament of Christ, the testament for which we will give account one day, for the one who's doing that, what about verse 16 of our text? In your name they rejoice all day long. Have you ever had a day when you rejoiced all day long? I hope so. I hope you've had a lot of them. If you're a Christian, according to this text, you should really have had a lot of those days. In a sense, every day. Oh, I don't mean that days are not interrupted by sorrow. That days are not interrupted by deep sorrow. Tremendous grief. Great challenges. But the undergirding, reassuring factor, even in those times, is what? I'm in the Lord. Therefore, as Paul wrote in Philippians 4, 4, rejoice in the Lord. Always, and again I say rejoice. And so even in those times of adversity, I can be so thankful that I always have something in which I can rejoice, and that is my covenant relationship with the Lord. Because as I keep up my walk in the light of his countenance, I can rejoice in his name all day long. And there's something here about the name that we should appreciate. In your name they rejoice all day long. People don't rejoice by simply expressing the name of God or claiming to be followers of God. They have to come to know the joyful sound. They have to keep up their walk in the light of God's countenance. They have to do all in his what? Name. And what does that involve? Paul tells us in a New Testament text in Colossians 3.17, one that we have looked at quite often. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of, that is by what? The authority of the Lord Jesus. And so we do only that which is authorized by the Lord. And when we know that we're doing that, we can rejoice all day long. Because we have that peace that surpasses understanding. And yes, that joy that is unspeakable. And then the final expression in this beautiful text from Psalm 89 is, and in your righteousness they are exalted. What does that mean? In your righteousness they are exalted. Does that mean that because God is perfect in righteousness that we are perfect in righteousness in some way because God has transmuted to us through Christ uh, 
a righteousness that enables us to be absolutely free from sin and never fall and never have any possibility of falling. The idea of once saved, always saved, is that what he's talking about? No. It is certainly true that God is perfect in righteousness. He's sinless, as is the Christ. The Godhead is sinless. No one would deny that. But the psalmist here is not saying that because of the perfect righteousness of God, we somehow have that righteousness transmuted to us in a way that keeps us from ever falling, makes it of no consequence what we ever do. We can never be lost. Some contend that that is the case. But that's not what the scripture teaches as a whole, is it? No. Another psalm at 106, verse 3 says, Blessed are those who keep justice, and he who does righteousness at all times. Blessed are those who keep justice, and he who does righteousness at all times. He who does righteousness, doing right. That's what righteousness is. Another psalm, 119, 172 says, My tongue shall speak of your word, for all your commandments are righteousness. Blessed are those who keep justice and he who does righteousness at all times, Psalm 106.3. My tongue shall speak of your word, for all your commandments are righteousness, Psalm 119.172. Sounds like righteousness is something that we must be involved in. Doing right, in other words, in emulation of the righteousness of God. Matthew 5.48, be perfect, therefore, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. In other words, that's the standard for which we strive. There is a part that we must play. The righteousness of God is not simply His righteousness, but His what? His plan for making us righteous. That which we must do. Remember Romans 10, beginning at verse 1, and Paul's expression for his brother Israelites his brethren in the flesh. What did he say about them there? Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to righteousness. Then he goes on, for they being ignorant of God's righteousness, being ignorant that God is righteous, no, that's not what he's saying. For they being ignorant of God's righteousness is an expression of what? They being ignorant of God's plan for making them righteous. They're still holding on to that old covenant. They being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness have not submitted to the righteousness of God. I must submit to the righteousness of God. That doesn't mean submit to the fact that God is perfect in righteousness, obviously. It means submit to the plan God has given man to make him righteous. Remember Acts 10, 34 and 35 at the household of Cornelius? When Peter came there, he said, what? I get it now, in effect. He said, I understand something I have not seen before. I preached it. He had preached it, but he had not fully understood it until that vision and until he came to the household of Cornelius and realized, truly, I perceive now that what? God is no respecter of persons, as the King James puts it, that God shows no partiality, as the New King James says, but... Here it is. In every nation, he who fears him and what? Works righteousness is accepted by him. So there's no question about the fact 
that the expression in his righteousness we are exalted has to relate to what he has told us to do to be righteous. Now, in telling us that, is he telling us we can earn our salvation without God's grace and without God's mercy? No, indeed. And Paul makes that clear in a passage in Titus chapter 3 and verse 4 beginning. There he writes, but when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us through the washing of regeneration, that's baptism, and renewing of the Holy Spirit. By the teaching of the Holy Spirit, teaching us to be washed in the water, cleansed by the blood, that's how we became righteous. And when he says not of works of righteousness or by works of righteousness which we have done, he's simply saying we didn't come up with the plan to make ourselves righteous. You can't do that. But he is not saying there is no plan to which we must submit in order to be righteous because God has given us that plan. And either that is true or you have the Bible contradicting itself and the Apostle Paul contradicting himself and Paul contradicting Peter and every kind of contradiction you could imagine, don't you? Because when Peter says, in every nation he who fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him, and then Paul says, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, unless they're talking about two different kinds of works, you've got a clear contradiction and you can go home now. Because this book is useless if that's the case, isn't it? But obviously there's no contradiction. The word of God is consistent. And when Paul writing to Titus says, not by works of righteousness which we have done, he's simply saying we can't earn it by a plan that we have devised. But everywhere through scripture there is a plan that God has devised. And that constitutes God's righteousness. The righteousness to which we must submit by faith in order to appropriate his marvelous, matchless grace, his love that he has shown to us. And until and unless we do that, we have no hope of salvation. Blessed are the people who know the joyful sound. They walk, O Lord, in the light of your countenance. In your name they rejoice all day long, and in your righteousness. They are exalted. Have you allowed the righteousness of God to exalt you this morning? Not if you have not believed in Christ, repented of your sins, confessed him to be the Christ, and have been buried with him in baptism for the remission of sins. You must do that because that's God's righteousness. That is, that's God's plan for making man righteous. That's the plan that has come to us through his love and through his mercy to give us hope of eternal salvation. And we plead with you to do that. Submit to that plan if you haven't. But what about those who have once submitted to that plan but who are no longer walking in the light of his countenance? That is, no longer walking in the light of his word and need to come home to make your calling and election sure as two precious souls did here on Wednesday night. Why would you hesitate?
when indeed the plan that God has given man is so clear, including the plan for his wayward child to come home to him. The plan is repentance of the sin that is public in nature, confession of that sin in that same public way, saying, I have sinned to your brothers and your sisters. Pray with me. Pray for me. And we're eager to do that to the God of heaven who is perfectly eager. His eagerness is perfect to forgive you. But he cannot because of his justice until you come home to him. As we stand to sing, will you come?